So Psalm 88 uh, is page 597. It will be very helpful to have it open if you've got a Bible nearby. Page 597 in the Pew Bibles, um, or just Psalm 88 if it's on your phone. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite bands growing up um, were REM, um, which I don't know if you, some people may know REM, they may like REM. Um, if you know REM, you'll know that many of their songs are, are kind of nostalgic, minor key, you know, they're not the most upbeat most of the time. There's one song um, which I have a very, dis you know how songs attach themselves to memories or vice versa, I can't quite work out which I mean there. But you know, a song transports you back to a, per a particular time. I have a very mundane memory, but pleasant memory, of being in the car with my dad and my sister. My sister had just bought a particular single by REM on cassette tape, and we were listening to it on repeat, or rather, you know, rewind, whatever it was with cassettes, um, over and over as we drove through the, middle of the, the, through the village of Milton Ernest in northern Bedfordshire, um, which is near where I grew up. <laughs> And, uh, and the song in question was Shiny Happy People, which is not particularly like many of the other, many other REM, REM songs. It's a very upbeat song, as the title would suggest, Shiny Happy People, and the lyrics go something like this, well, some of the lyrics, shiny happy people holding hands, there's no time to cry, happy, happy, put it in your heart where tomorrow shines. And it's a, it's a lovely song, I commend it to you. And the reason I'm talking to you about REM's Shiny Happy People is because as I was um, preparing this sermon on Psalm 88, uh, there's that jarring thing of, of this experience, which you've heard read, of, of deep sadness, which many of us experience in different ways to, de to varying degrees, and the expectation in life generally, and perhaps particularly in church, of being shiny happy people. And we've just had a lovely time shining and being happy and dancing in the, in the pews. It's been wonderful. Um, but the question remains, are Christians meant to be shiny, happy people? Should we always be shiny, happy people? Um, or to put it another way, is it okay for Christians to feel sad for prolonged periods? Um, or to put it another way, is depression uh, or just debilitating sadness, is that a sign of a lack of faith? Um, are depression and sadness opposed to Christian faith? Perhaps some of us are struggling even now or have done in the past with um, clinical depression. Or we've had family members who are struggling on and off with depression. And the question may arise, what do we do with our faith in those moments or those times? Do we suspend our faith during that kind of depressive time? Um, what are we to make of it spiritually when we're sad for long periods of time? What do we do about it? I think Psalm 88 helps us enormously with these questions of deep sadness. We're going to do two things with Psalm 88. First, we will look closely at the psalm and simply um, see an ancient experience of faith. And then we will ask, so what? Firstly, an ancient experience of faith. And then the most important question in all sermons, so what? Most of the time, you should be asking, sitting in the pews saying, what is the Bible saying? So what? And that is what I hope to do. So Psalm 88, let's jump in. An ancient experience of faith, so what? Um, as I was preparing this, I, I read through, the, you'll be pleased to know, I read through the psalm several times um, in order to get to know it better. And as I read through Psalm 88, um, I began to jot down particular words which summarized the thrust of how this chap who's writing this psalm was feeling. 
And all I'm going to do to share this experience of faith is, is highlight four or five words for us. And it may be as I go through and I highlight those words, with some of them, or indeed even all of them, you may just, they may resonate with you and think, yeah, that is me. Or maybe that was me a number of years ago, whenever it was. So firstly, this guy in the psalm is overwhelmed. He is utterly overwhelmed. Verse 3, verse 7, he says, I am, verse 3, I'm overwhelmed with troubles. You've overwhelmed me with your waves. It is though he, he, he thinks God is, is pummeling him with wave after wave. If you've ever been in a kind of rough sea and you get hit by one wave, you slightly go under the sea, and before you get a chance to get your breath, you're hit by another wave. Um, and we've perhaps experienced that. You, there's an illness, and just before you're able to recover, something else happens in your life, and it just knocks you off your feet again, and he feels pummeled by God. He's utterly overwhelmed. He's sinking under the rising waters of troubles, he says. And we get an idea from the rest of the psalm that he's got chronic health conditions. Verse 15, he says, I've been afflicted since my youth. Some kind of chronic health thing. He's close to death, he feels, whether literally or just by his feeling, experience. His friends have disappeared. Terrors from God, verse 16, have completely engulfed him. He's overwhelmed. He is not coping. The travails of life are too much for him. He's completely overwhelmed. That's the first word that seems to summarize him. Second, he's full of shame. And this is so sad. This is really sad. He's full of shame. Verse 8, he says, You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. It's a really, really sad moment in the psalm, in a very sad psalm, where not only has he lost his friends for some reason, but he feels, whether or not it's true, but he feels the, this shame. He's repulsive to his friends, or his former friends. He, they, he thinks they won't want to look at him. He's repulsive to them. We, we all long for love and respect. Um, and here, there is no love, only repulsion. Um, and when we read Psalm 88, there's that kind of ongoing, gnawing sense that he somehow deserves this. And maybe some of us resonate with that. His sense of shame, whether justified or not, is, is eating him up. And it's, it's making everything else that he's experiencing worse. So he's overwhelmed. He's full of shame. He feels trapped. Confined is the word that it, that it uses here in the NIV. Verse 8, I'm confined and cannot escape. Have you had that? He, he looks back and all he sees is suffering. He looks up to God and all he feels is judgment. He looks... Um, he looks kind of out to his friends and they've deserted him. He can't look forward because everything is just all-consuming darkness. He's confined and, and it's as though his life is being reduced to a kind of smaller and smaller circle that he can't really escape from. And he wonders, will I ever get out of this confinement? Will the darkness ever end? Trapped. Fourth, he feels isolated. Uh, we've seen that his friends have been taken from him. And many of us will know that when we're at our lowest, if you're really struggling with maybe depression or something similar to it, when we're at our lowest, we feel as though the world cannot connect with us. Maybe people don't want to connect with us, and even if they wanted to, they can't. They can't understand. It's complete isolation. No one wants to help. And so verse 18 the end of the psalm, sums up his complete isolation in a pretty brutal way. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. 
Um, we've seen, if you've been here the last few weeks, which I haven't, uh, but I put the series together so I know what it was saying. Um, the Psalms capture the full range of human emotion and experience. And we've seen joy, we've seen hope, um, worry, uh, and today sadness. Um, yet all of them, bar this one psalm, contain some glint of hope. Every, it's 150 psalms, and all of them contain a glint of hope, apart really from this one. See, normally in the psalms, there is an experience of hardship, or often in the, in the psalms, there's an experience of hardship, and it starts by a declaration of praise, and then, ah, oh, my life is in a miry pit, and yet, God, you've put me on a firm rock, and you've rescued me, praise the Lord. And that's the kind of, often, the pattern of the psalms, is God's great, I'm in an awful place, God's put me in a better place, praise the Lord. Um, here, there's no such rescue. There's no praise the Lord. It is darkness, is my closest friend. It's complete and utter isolation, and it's bleak. It's pretty bleak. Final one, he's disillusioned with God. And this might be the hardest thing for those of us who struggle with depression or other forms of, of suffering as Christians. Not only are we sometimes overwhelmed, shamed, trapped, isolated, but the God who is meant to be there and help us seems nowhere to be seen. So in verse 1, did you notice verse 1, the psalmist calls him the God who saves me. But from the tone of the rest of the psalm, it quite, might possibly be sarcastic, mightn't it? You know, but you are the God who saves me. Thank you very much. I feel very saved right now. God. Um, if it's not sarcastic, then at the very least, that kind of you are the God who saves me has become that meaningless formula. And maybe some of us, when we've come to church previously or even now, we pray things or we sing things, and it's a pretty meaningless formula. You know, the idea of the goodness of God seems like a cruel joke to this man. And maybe some of us have experienced that as well. And so this entire psalm is like one desperate plea and prayer which God is seemingly deaf to. And that is why in verses 10 to 12, he kind of, he says to God, well, I may as well be dead. That's how cut off I feel from you now, God. I may as well be dead. I will be cut off from you. That's my experience now. That's how it feels. And here is the, the kind of real kicker for him and for us, perhaps, um, which we may relate, relate to. He's doing the right things. He says to God, I'm doing the right things and you're not playing ball, God. So verse 1, my prayer comes before you day and night. I'm praying. Where are you? Verse 9, I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, I cry to you, Lord. For help, in the morning my prayer comes before you. And then, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Can you hear it? He's, he's disillusioned, he's disappointed with God. I'm doing the right things. I'm praying every day. Where are you? Isn't being a Christian meant to help? Um, he's like um, in the film Bruce Almighty, the classic Jim Carrey film. Um, <laughs> uh, it's quite funny, actually, that film. And in it, the character that Jim Carrey plays is called Bruce. And uh, at the, towards the beginning of the film, he is being afflicted in his life with all sorts of horrible things. And he gets so fed up that he stands in the middle of the road in a storm and he just says, Smite me, almighty smiter! 
and he looks up to God and shakes his fist. He's like, and it, I think this psalm is a similar feeling. Like if you're there, come on then, let's have it, because nothing else is working. That's how he feels. He's disappointed with God. He has no access to the goodness of God. One, one commentator on this psalm calls it, oh, there's a pigeon. That's not what the commentator calls it. That'd be a very strange comment. No. One commentator on the psalm describes this psalm as an embarrassment to conventional faith. An embarrassment to conventional faith. And we can see why. Yet here it is, an ancient experience of faith. It is an experience of faith through the dark night of the soul as some poets have described it, of faith in the valley, of faith in the face of the hiddenness of God. That is a phrase that Martin Luther, the great German reforming theologian in the 16th century, used a lot. He, sp he spoke a lot about the hiddenness of God in our walk of faith. And perhaps as we explored that ancient experience of faith, there were elements of it which resonated with you. And if they did, well, it put lie to the old adage that the Bible is irrelevant or out of date. I think if some bits are hard to understand, well, Psalm 88 maybe resonates and, and is not out of date. It's an ancient experience of faith, but in fact, this morning, it may be a very modern experience of faith for some of us. An ancient experience of faith and a modern one. So what? There it is. There's the experience. So what? Three brief so what's. Firstly, this is in the Bible. This psalm, therefore, is a gift from God to show that he gets it. The Bible, as you know, is a library of literature written by humans and inspired by God. It is the work, therefore, of God's spirit using human authors. And the psalms, right in the middle of the Bible, are the prayer book and the song book of God's people from the ancient Israelites through to today. And here, bang slap in the middle of that song book, that prayer book, is the experience of a guy who is struggling about as hard as it is to struggle, about as badly as we can struggle. He is deeply sad, probably depressed, a guy who sees no light whatsoever. And instead of shuffling this chap's experience off to the side and the margins of the Bible, God, by his spirit, ordains that this Psalm 88 will be right bang slap in the middle of it. So that we can't, if we read the Psalter, which we should, we can't fail to see that this is uh, an experience of faith which is common to humanity, and common to Christians today. And it shows, therefore, that God knows it, he understands it, he gets it. And it may be a reminder to us this morning that actually our human experience of life on earth is one of groaning, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, of, of just eagerly awaiting the new creation, where we will not be walking by faith, but by sight. So that's the first thing. This is in the Bible, and it's a gift from God to show he gets it. Second thing, this is a prayer, and that shows us that extreme sadness is not the end of faith. Um, I didn't realize my children would be in the service when I wrote this talk, so apologies, girls. But I've got, I've got twins. They're now 12, and they're now burying their heads in shame. Um, <laughs> And when our twins were tiny babies, people used to ask us, can you tell the difference between their cries? 
And frankly, the answer was no. Um, it's just noise which we have to respond to. When they got a bit older, you could be begin to tell the difference. Um, we had three children, in fact, under 18 months. And so we were somewhat weary. And usually they took it in turns to cry. One would cry, we'd sort them out, the next would cry, and so on, forever. And occasionally, it, when it was really bad, two would cry at once, the twins would set each other off, and they'd both cry. And on the rarest of occasions, which were golden moments, all three would cry. Usually in the supermarket. And I generally found their crying extremely trying. I found it very hard work. Because, you know, you've, you've fed them, you've changed them, you've changed their baby grow or whatever, and they're still crying. And I have nothing else to give you. I, what more do you want? And, um, and so I found it quite hard. But when all three went, I laughed. It was just funny because all you could do was laugh. And, I, I, and for some reason, I floated above the stress at that point. Um, and you just felt pity from others that looked at you. Um, so why did I say that? Yes, because young children cry to communicate. Crying children are crying because they know they need something and they trust they will get it if they cry hard enough. Um, and my children were experts. No, they, they weren't that bad. Um, an American medic visited a, Roman, a, a Romanian orphanage and made this comment. The most remarkable thing about the infant room was how quiet it was, probably because the infants had learned that their cries were not responded to. See, crying out is an act of trust and faith. And this psalm is a desperate cry. It is angry, it is dark, it is confused perhaps in places. It is desperately sad, but it is directed towards God. And so that, that means that our deep sadness does not mean the end of our faith. This is a prayer in the Bible. Third, this is not the end of the story. This psalm is not the end of the story. Did you notice the title of the psalm? We don't often look at the titles of the psalms because we don't really understand them. Um, but it, this is the final psalm of the sons of Korah. The first, if you're interested, is Psalms 42 and 43, which are originally one psalm. Fun fact. Um, also, actually, about a kind of slightly sad experience in Psalm 42. The sons of Korah were likely a sort of choir or a guild for temple worship, writing and leading sung prayer. They were kind of Dan. Dan of, of the temple years. Um, and actually, these songs of the sons of Korah, if you look at them, there's, I think, 10 or 12, uh, they're some of the richest in the Psalms. Um, and this is, this is the final one. And this one seems to have been written, according to the title, by He-Man, great name. We all wish we were called He-Man. <laughs> but written by He-Man, the Ezraite, who we are told in 1 Chronicles 6 was the leader of the Korahite guild. So here is a guy raised up by God with a gift clearly for poetry and music, whose anthology of poems and prayers ends up in the Bible. One commentator put it beautifully like this, burdened and despondent as he was, his existence was far from pointless. If it was a living death, in God's hands it was to bear much fruit. 
Isn't that lovely? I think of a more recent, a more recent example of, of William Cooper, the great poet and hymn writer from Olney, who used to be the slave trader, wrote Amazing Grace. He had dreadful mental health, awful bouts of depression, yet used mightily by God. His sadness didn't define him. It wasn't all there was to say uh, about this writer of the psalm or William Cooper. And the same is true, of course, of us when we are in the depths. This is not the end of the story. So if you are in that place now, this is not the end of the story. And if you are, you may respond in your mind, and you can come and tell me afterwards if you like. You might respond, you don't know what it's like. Actually, it does define me. I don't have the gifts of a He-Man, the Ezraite, or a William Cooper. Well, if He-Man, the Ezraite's journey doesn't encourage you, let me point you to someone else. Look beyond the Korahite, He-Man, to Christ, to Jesus. And now this, we're going to finish here, but this is strong wine. Strong wine, theologically speaking. Again, it's a phrase of Martin Luther. It's strong wine, but it's important, it's vital. Because it seems from this psalm and from others, and from the writings in Lamentations and Ecclesiastes and Job, and from a Christian experience throughout the ages, that God calls some people to a deep faith that holds on in the darkness, even when no solution seems near. And here is the big thing, which I'd love us to grasp this morning. The God that we are holding on to is the one who made himself known in the hiddenness of the cross of Jesus. Think about the paradox, which is at the very heart of our Christian faith. The cross of Jesus is right at the heart of everything. That is the moment of revelation of who God is. This is love that, Christ, that God loved us in Christ. Right? That's the moment of, of seeing that God is a God of love. It's the moment of revelation of who God is, seen at the cross of Jesus. And yet, think about this, God was never more hidden than at the cross as Jesus died. Jesus' suffering both hid God and revealed him. And so this is often the experience of those of us who walk by faith and not by sight. The deep darkness calls for deep faith that eventually gives to a deep sense of God's glory. And so if we are experiencing that darkness at the moment, well, we know something of that deep paradox which Jesus experienced as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And we know how his story ends. As we identify with him, we know how Jesus' story ends. Jesus' story does not end in darkness, but in triumphant light, not with death, but glorious life. Not with loneliness or why have you forsaken me, but with deep communion with the Father. Not with wounds alone, but with wounds now glorified. Not with perishable life, but with imperishable life. Not with defeat, but with ultimate victory. This is not the end of the story. Amen.